Hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community. Mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is from the 2023 Fisher Poetry Gathering in Astoria, Oregon. Friday night marks the start of performances, and in this episode you'll hear from host Maggie Birch and Elma Burnham from Bellingham, Washington, and Annie Howell-Adams from Friday Harbor, Washington. These performances were recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon on Friday, February 24th, 2023. So, without further ado, here's the show. And I have the honor of welcoming as our next poet, Alma Burnham, who we know as our MC from the first hour, and a dear friend and fellow Fisher person of mine. Welcome, Alma. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks, everyone, for coming out, especially everyone that's never been to Fisher Poets before. It takes a brave soul to join us, and we're happy you're here. Um, I'm not sure what Maggie said, but Elma is my name, and I fish in Bristol Bay, and I'm joining today from Mount Vernon, Washington, where I live. I'm going to read a couple different things. This is newish. It's called Dead Man's Float. The deck boss is in the bunk, what we've started calling the sleep machine. We have pulled off our sticky, wet rain gear, crawled in the bunk, and woken up three times already today. The same sun that helped me get up the first time is still up, still blaring, bright, though now on the other side of the river. On this third time, the two of us out on deck are now waiting earnestly with gusto and keen interest for our chance in the sleep machine. I am hopeful that the next time in the sleep machine will bring me into the next day, that when I wake up, I'll allow myself to imagine pulling off a one-pager calendar and changing the date, finally crossing July into August. I yearn for the sleep machine, but really my utmost desire at this moment is to lay in a dead man's float. Let's anchor up, drop the hook. My knees are sore from balancing and my feet are swollen and heavy in my boots. My wrists feel 10 times bigger than my elbows. I want to stop listening for orders from the flybridge and I want the boat to stop and I want the anchor to charge down to the bottom and I want it to find it and dig in and hold us float us. Also known as the survival float, the dead man's float maneuver is meant to allow for relaxation and rest in the water. I am ready for relaxation and rest. This season's swim is long and hard, and I am searching frantically for a way to buoy my body against the pace. U.S. Navy sailors perform the dead man's float to qualify as second-class swimmers during training at the Pearl Harbor-based search and rescue swimmers practice. Today, on the 33rd day of fishing in this 66th tide and this zillionth set, I am a soldier fisherman thinking about survival. 
Float with our mouth open and nose above the surface. Anchor down and directed by the tide. Hold us steady. I want to lay in the sleep machine like I'm floating in the so poorly named dead man's float just at the surface of the Atlantic, the saltier ocean of my childhood. I want to fill my lungs with air and lay fat, flat and listen to the clink clink of tide rushing past the aluminum, like your ears breaking in and out of the surface. The splash on the sleep machine soothes me to rest. Okay, I want to start this one with just saying that we absolutely need fewer guns in this country. This, thank you. Yeah. Uh, however, once upon a time, I did uh, shoot a seagull and um, just to see if I could do it. And Mother Nature served me my karma right back. And that's what this is about. My story with the seagull is a long and windy one. It begins or ends the day I shot one with a gun. I took position from a floating skiff on the bow with lots of concentration that I quite regret now. I hit it that day, which I think is why it resides forever present in my mind's eye. As a child, I would watch them from the dock, never thinking one day I'd really want to kill one with a rock. As a fisherman, I didn't mind the seagull at first until learning that they really are the worst. I took it too far though that day, killing one for some sick version of play. For thus began the curse and my relationship with them has never been worse. I set my net the next day as one does in the wind and rain and big swell because it was open, it was time to fill our boats with gurry and slime. I was not prepared and knew it, ignoring at the first call of the watching gulls, I really blew it. Full of fish, my net went dry, quickly every salmon losing at least one eye. The seagulls crowded the net before I could repay them my debt, before I could apologize for killing one, in broad daylight with that awful, ugly gun. Today they know I'm sorry, I can tell, for I no longer yell when they beat us to fish and move to take their eyes with a quick squish. Like I said, my story with the seagull is a long and windy one. I'll never shoot one again, just for fun. I'll pay my dues and move my net, nod and wave in hopes to repay my debt. Thanks. This is another old one that I haven't read in a while. Um, it starts with, well, I hope everyone has read some Rachel Carson at one point or another. <laughs> if you haven't, it's in an extra tough zine and you should ask Mo about it. Um, oh yeah, and it's for sale at the Gear Shack, featured, the zine Rachel's featured in. Um, so anyway, I'm gonna read something she wrote and then my response. This is from Under the Sea Wind. She writes, he sometimes thought about fish as he looked at them on deck or being iced down in the hold. What had the eyes of the mackerel seen? 
things he'd never see, places he'd never go. He seldom put it into words, but it seemed to him incongruous that a creature that had made a go of life in the sea, that had run the gauntlet of the relentless enemies that he knew roved through that dimness his eyes could not penetrate, should at last come to death on the deck of a mackerel saner, slimy with fish gurry and slippery with scales. But after all, he was a fisherman and seldom had time to think such thoughts. Then this is me. Dear one, as you sway on deck, eyes down toward the icy hold, asking yourself, what had the eyes of the mackerel seen? I bounce around on my smaller skiff, eyes down towards the slushy fish bin, and ask myself, what had the eyes of the salmon seen? Where had they been? Where are they going? Really, though, what I would like to know is if these fish coming to death on my deck have raced by, hid from, felt those coming to death on yours. I worry not about geography and biology and the details that perhaps hold a true answer. Instead, I suspend my disbelief and believe my slight inkling that the related experiences of these fish, the incongruousness of their life in the sea, as you say, arriving at death here on this aluminum deck, is really not incongruous at all. Rather, the opposite. A shared experience in a harmony of dead fish eyeballs and young fishermen allowing a moment of pause in midst of swells and an arduous bloodbath. Perhaps these fish had seen the same, graced the same kelp bed, bumped against the same hull. I understand that the likelihood of my very sockeye brushing past your very mackerel is unlikely. I understand that this celebratory hall is also one of tragedy. I understand that our target species, like our days, are so very different, but I prefer to embrace these thoughts, these ones we seldom have time to think. In love and gurry, Elma. Thanks. Um, oh, I did that. Sorry, I turned the light off. Um, here we go with a new one, sort of, called Going Fast in the Dark. This is my last one. I am trying to write about that thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark especially when the stereo is working and it is loud and the song is good, when the fish bins are empty and we can get on step, when the sky is clear and so briefly dark enough that there is no horizon. It is black, like that more fresh than brackish oyster pond I spent that one summer on, the one that looks bottomless if you can peer into it around the reflection of the blue sky. I do not get that why the freshwater ponds can be dark as night and the ocean is all colors of blue. I'm trying to write about that thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark, trying to put some understanding to it, because I want to live more like that off the boat, off the tide schedule, just feel like that on a Monday morning. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I like to imagine you do. I like to think I could call you today and start so simply with something like, do you remember that time? 
and you would just smile and explain this, what I'm talking about, this going fast in the dark, maybe too fast in the dark, widening your stance to keep your balance and essentially jumping 18 inches at a time to keep it, maybe holding on and maybe not, trying to do the whole trip with your arms tucked into your rain pants because it is wet and cold. I like to imagine that all I have to do is start and that you will finish, that you will meet me halfway for once and be there with me in the memory. I am trying to write about that thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark, but I heard that the more we talk about and live in memory, the farther away it gets, more faded and more out of reach. I have heard that and smart people say that, but I could talk about this for a long time and here it would be still right in front of my face. Somebody probably tried to get this feeling, a memory like this, tattooed on them. What happens to the memory then? I'm trying to write about this thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark, when it is high tide or the channel is calm enough that you could really go forever, when your own blinky red light is the only one you can see. I'm trying to write about this because I know the trans kid in the bow really loves this feeling too. They are a cowboy or a cowgirl or cow them or cow person standing in the bow holding on to the line like it's a pair of reins. And I am driving, but they are in control, daring me to go faster and faster with gurry in their eyebrows and glitters of scales on their cheeks. I'm trying to write about this because I see them and they need more things to love. I'm trying to write about this thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark, especially when you are standing by the outboard facing backwards and the wake is singing you into some kind of trance. And if you're in the right part of the world at the right time of year, that blackness is interrupted with bright green phosphorescence. I'm trying to write about this because it doesn't seem fair to keep it just for me. I want to share it with whoever needs it, like coffee and donuts at Mug Up, something to take with on that Monday morning. I'm trying to write about this thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark, when you can say whatever you need to say into the wind and it's moving so fast that no one will hear it. Or you could sing it. It is dark enough and fast enough that you feel brave enough to say whatever you need to say and brave enough to put a hole in the boat and pull the plug and let all the gurry drain out. This is another backwards facing sort of trance that can only happen when you go really fast in the dark. I'm trying to write about this thing that happens when you go really fast in the dark because today is just a Monday morning. That's it, thank you. Dang, Alma. Wow, I liked your old stuff and I like your new stuff too. Um, you had me laughing and crying and now I have to talk to people. Um, next up we have Annie Howell Adams who used to run a commercial salmon troller, uh, fishing vessel Marvel out of Sitka, Alaska. I can't wait to hear you. Welcome up. Hi guys, hey, Hi. woo! Um, I'm gonna tell you a fish story tonight, of course, because I'm a fisherman. Hi, there we go, how's that? I'm gonna tell you a fish story tonight because I'm a fisherman. I did wanna just mention a little thing that I'm the artist that did the poster this year. 
and the, the image, I wanted to honor my old skipper, David Kelly, who had a boat called the Arrow. And the poster, we left Astoria, went out the Columbia River, went across the Gulf, and the poster is a homeboy from Seaside, Oregon, and that's the Arrow crossing the Gulf. Okay, so tonight I'm gonna read a fish story. And thanks to Fisher Poets, I've actually, okay, this is the first time I'm admitting this publicly that I'm writing a memoir. She fished in Alaska. And um, there's a, I have a little YouTube link. Uh, if you type in 1978 salmon trolling, you'll get to my little YouTube. I took a movie camera to Alaska when I was 21 years old, and the YouTube link uh, is that footage. So anyway, it's kind of fun. It's old school. I'm old school. Okay, fish story. The salmon opening was in two days. No one was around who wanted to go out. I didn't like fishing by myself. There was a possibility that something could go wrong, like accidentally falling overboard. The only time I fell in the water was in Sitka's harbor. That was bad enough, let alone falling from a moving boat at troll speed, three knots. The work wasn't hard, but two sets of eyes made things safer. There was no choice. I couldn't stay tied to the dock. If it was an easy place to fish, I could do it alone. There, was all, there were almost never any boats in Bjorka Channel. The gear was shallow, the scenery and the anchorage were both good. After a little pep talk to quell some trepidation and worry, I backed Marvel out of my slip and headed across Sitka Sound. Once the anchor was set, I salted down a few dozen herring to firm up overnight. Salmon always liked salted herring. Near the channel was an anchorage with enough room for two boats. The nearby scenic trees looked tortured, bonsai'd from wind and poor rocky soil, giving them sculptured shapes. To start the morning, it was easy to motor out of the anchorage at troll speed and just drop the gear in the water close by. No long run offshore, no loud scream of the diesel engine first thing in the morning at full throttle. It was simple, set the gear, and then make some coffee and toast. A copy of Steinbeck's East of Eden was tucked in the wheelhouse for those long trolling hours of nothing. Marvel's small wheelhouse was like the cockpit of an airplane, but without all the dashboard. On the right side, sandwiched between studs, was a collection of music tapes, most of them recorded over the winter at a friend's house who worked at a radio station. He had an extensive album collection. Below the music tapes was an important fathometer showing the depth of water under the boat, the opposite of an altimeter. Trolling gear hung down at about 20 fathoms in shallow places or 30 fathoms deep or more in other locations. To entice king salmon feeding near the bottom, trollers moved along their fishing gear close to the bottom. A critical part of trolling was knowing the underwater topography, even though it couldn't be seen, only conceptualized. 
The sea bottom was anything but flat. Shallow spots or, or pinnacles, not all of them marked on charts, would snag gear. I left a pile of lead weights banging around on under, underwater pinnacles until I figured out what was happening along the bottom. When fishing close to the bottom, one eye was always on the fathometer. It was mounted on a hinge, so even from the cockpit when running the gear, it was possible to know what was happening under the boat. Also in the wheelhouse was a piece of electronics, a paper machine, that gave a sense of what was going on in the water column under the boat. It had a horrible smell, like something died but provided useful information through a transducer mounted on the hull of the boat. Marvel's transducer was aimed ahead at five degrees, indicating what was coming up, sort of like foreseeing the future. On this morning, it showed that there was a lot of feed in the water. The paper machine was typical of fishing in general. A lot of good, salted with some bad. The smell. I lowered the gear with a polished bronze spoons on, on the bottom. Back at Fisherman's Terminal in Seattle, Gre Carl, on the grace, gave me a king spoon to try. Take it, he said. I won't be using it. These spoons were made in Petersburg back in 1920. The bronze lure, a fin spoon, had a design of a little person holding their arms up to the sun. I attached the fin spoon to a freshly tied leader and clipped it to the bottom. It was the first time it had been in the water, having been wrapped in tissue paper and stowed away in a box for over 60 years. The fin spoon and my boat, the Marvel, were the same age. It was original equipment that lined up to catch the kind of fish that roamed the ocean in the 1920s before the dams. I hoped that the fish gods would recognize this pairing from another era. Herring was clipped higher up on the stainless troll lines. Each of my four main stainless lines were rigged the same way. Without anyone to talk to, I entered into a different state of mind. Fishing with another person, a good friend on board, was social, chatty, funny, by myself, my focus was more deliberate, more thoughtful, and cautious. I had spent a summer fishing alone, hand trolling, but it was different now. With Marvel, it was a commitment. There were monthly boat payments. I was taking it seriously, figuring it out. Salmon fishing was exciting. On the first pass, the bell started ringing on the starboard trolling pole, indicating a fish was on. Standing in the cockpit in the stern of the boat, I engaged the hydraulic lever, bringing the gear in. Bam, a nice big 30-pound king salmon. And on the hook below was another nice fish, a double header. By the time I ran through all the four stainless lines, two more big ocean-run king salmon were on deck. I turned the boat right around, re-threaded some herring onto hooks, and circled back to troll through the same spot again. The channel was a deep canyon that led out to the ocean, where salmon that normally lived in 50 fathoms of water or more 
could swim close to the shore and feed on bait fish that balled up in the shallow waters. A school of king salmon had moved onto my shallow reef. Same thing on the second and third pass. The fish were biting. I had the place to myself. It was a fisherman's dream. When a fish was hooked, if it was big enough and mad enough, it pulled on the stainless troll wire, even with a 50-pound lead weight hanging down off the bottom of the wire. It took a powerful fish to yank the wire around. When such a fish was hooked on the line, the best course of action was to let it tire itself out without baiting a shark or sea lion. On Marvel's stern was a long piece of surgical tubing, a super snubber. Having a fish clipped on the super snubber was both dangerous and effective. Dangerous because rarely the hook would tear out of the fish's mouth and catapult forward. Fish's revenge on fishermen. Effective because a fish would tire itself out swimming and pulling on the stretchy tubing like a giant rubber band. The chance of landing a fish greatly improved after some time swimming on the super snubber. My fish was massive. It was a, oh my God, look at the size of that fish kind of fish. <laughs> I ran through the gear and trolled back over the hot spot, letting Mr. Big move back and forth across the prop wash he looked like a caged animal, pacing, calculating his escape. There's a poem by Elizabeth Bishop about catching an old fish. In the poem, she saw five hooks hanging like a beard from the fish's mouth. In the end, she decides to let the fish go, conflicted about killing something so venerable. Now, I might be like the fisherman in the poem, but back then, the only goal was to land the fish. I waited, ran through all four lines, and kept an eye on Mr. Big. So how does a fish get so big? Did it miss a year or two to return to its river? Salmon typically are on a four-year life cycle, starting in their home stream, moving out to salt water where they stay until the fourth year. The scent of their river triggers the, the drive to spawn. Rain from their home streams mixes into ocean water. Fish can detect the smallest amount of their river's profile. Some salmon live longer than four years. They miss their cycle and continue to feed and grow out in the ocean waters. Maybe they swim to the other side of the Pacific. When rains fall and come, the fresh water pours out into the ocean and these fish might be too far away to smell their particular scent, and the trigger to spawn is delayed. Biologists think that some king salmon are five, six, seven, or even eight years old. My fish must have been one of the elder eight-year king salmon because it was enormous. There's almost nothing more thrilling than seeing a salmon at the end of a leader swimming back and forth across the prop wash. Their backs are dark green, darker than the salt water. I watched the fish swim to see if it had tired at all. Everything needed to go just right to get it in the boat. 
My adrenaline was racing. This was by far the biggest fish I had ever hooked. I pulled the leader hand over hand to the starboard side of the cockpit, watching its movements. Marvel's stern was low to the water, a convenient cockpit to work from, requiring only short gaff hooks, almost eye to eye with a fish. With the salmon alongside the boat, I pulled up on the leader to lift its head just slightly out of the water, and at the same moment, the back of the gaff came down in a sharp crack to stun the fish. With a twi quick twist of the gaff, it took both arms to, bring the sh to haul it aboard. The enormous fish was on deck. The fin spoon was dangling from its jaw. After I stopped shaking, I looked at the massive fish. The fish gods had noticed. I unclipped the fin spoon and placed it inside the wheelhouse for safekeeping, for keeping its magic and its luck, its status elevated to mythical object. After a few more passes, the tide changed, the fish moved back out to deep water, and the bite was over. I had my prize and a fish hold full of fish. Later, I went into Goddard Hot Springs to sell. A dozen boats were anchored up around the bay when I pulled up alongside the buying station. A few guys were standing around watching. I don't know what they were expecting as I unloaded one beautiful, large king salmon after another. I needed help getting the big one out of the fish hold. Without any adrenaline, it was hard to maneuver all that weight. The guys watching on the dock definitely weren't expecting that to come out of Marvel's fish hold. They put it on the scale to weigh the fish. Dressed out, it weighed 58 pounds, sending it into the 600-pound range. Someone offered to take my photo holding the fish. They all congratulated me and wanted to know what kind of gear I was using. I said something about salted herring, but I didn't mention anything about the fin spoon. A girl has to have some secrets. <laughs> the next morning, every one of those dozen boats followed Marvel out of the harbor. It was a little shocking seeing them all trying to catch fish on my spot, crowding onto my shallow reef, but the bite was over. It's no use trying to catch yesterday's fish. They'd moved on. After a few hours of no action, the fleet of boats moved on too, leaving me alone with a cup of coffee in one hand, east of Eden in the other, waiting for the right tide and the fish to bite. Thank you very much. She's got her fin spoon. She brought the magic to us. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go, mythical status. <laughs> that was the second set of the Fisher Poets Gathering, recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon, on Friday, February 24th, 2023. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. 
The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wartman. The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to thefisherpoetryarchive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow ye winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes. <laughs>